Heavenly Father, we thank you that your gospel does um, go out to the whole world. We do thank you, Father, that it is for all nations, all peoples everywhere, and we <coughs> want to be, as a community, Father, better at bringing the gospel to the community around us. So we pray for Dan now, Father, and ask that you would enable him to speak well on this subject. Please give him wisdom. Please help him to deliver what he's prepared. Um, and please help us, Father, to think more carefully about this topic. We pray, Father, for all of us that um, you'll help us to be more excited about the gospel and excited about its relevance for the world around us. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Miley Cyrus has revealed that she told her mum she was bisexual at the age of 14. The singer claimed that her religious parents, who she describes at one point as conservative, swear word, swear word, found it difficult to accept at first. I remember telling her I admire women in a different way and she asked me what that meant and I said I love them like I love boys, Miley said to Paper Mag. The Wrecking Ball star who was breaking out as Disney star Hannah Montana at the time added, it was so hard for her to understand. She didn't want me to be judged and she didn't want me to go to hell, but she believes in me more than she believes in any God. I just asked her to accept me and she has. Back in May, Cyrus gave an interview to promote her Happy Hippie Foundation, which strives to help homeless and lesbian, gay, bisexual youth in which she said that not all her relationships had been straight heterosexual ones. But in this most recent interview, Cyrus explains that she is open to a variety of sexual relationships. She said, I'm literally open to everything that is consenting and doesn't involve an animal, and everyone is of age. Everything that's legal, I'm down with. Yo, I'm down with any adult, anyone over the age of 18 who is down to love me. I don't relate to being a boy or a girl, and I don't have to have my partner relate to being a boy or a girl. Cyrus adds that she's had past relationships with women, but that they haven't been brought into the media spotlight like her relationships with men. Elsewhere in the interview, Cyrus says that she was inspired to set up a homeless charity after accepting the huge disparity between her life and the life of others. She said, I can't drive by in my Porsche and not do something. I see it all day, people in their Bentleys and their Rolls and their Ubers driving past these veterans who fought for our country or these young women who have been raped. I was doing a show two nights ago and I was wearing butterfly nipple pasties and butterfly wings. I'm standing there with my breasts out dressed like a butterfly. How is that fair? How am I so lucky? Now, what do we do? What do we do? How do you react to that? You want to laugh? You want to cry? You want to think, in the old words of the Roger Hammerstein song, we're bewitched, bothered and bewildered. How do we ever start relating the gospel of Jesus Christ to someone like that? But that's our challenge. Now, hopefully in these two sessions, the first session is, I suppose, a bit of a pep talk in the sense that I recognise that many of us do feel as if the world is crazy and we don't know what to do. We long for people to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We love to tell them in a way that's plausible. And we see kind of culture spiralling out of control. And we're here in our, I would imagine, again, I'm, I'm going to generalise here, predominantly white middle-class church, and we're thinking, what are we going to do? 
So, first session, a bit of a pep talk. Rally the troops. Second section, uh, session, some more practical, how do we engage in the culture around us? So that we might think, do you know what? I think I could engage with someone like Miley Cyrus. Now, the first thing is a bit of a, I suppose, a, a warning. We are not to be grumpy old men and grumpy old women. Do you remember that show a few years ago when they had famous talking heads? I've seen already some elbows, elbowing people. Uh, famous people who are doing a talking heads thing where they just moan about the state of the nation. A time when dogs were better, children were better, pavements were better, and then grumpy old women as well doing exactly the same thing. Now the issue there is that grumpy old men and women can have a sense, I suppose, of memory loss. There is a tendency to gloss over or even completely forget still the influence that the Christian gospel has had and continues to have in our society. And I am aware, as you are, of thousands of Christians all over the country in terms of the voluntary, voluntary sector and charity work. And if that was to stop, we really would see a complete breakdown. So there's a lot of great stuff going on. We can't just kind of have memory loss and say this is a completely different situation. Thank God we are still living off the, 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 the kind of the capital of the influence that the gospel has had in our country, and that's something that we need to remember. Secondly, we can't be grumpy old men and women and be short-sighted. It's very easy in our context at the moment as Bible-believing Christians to just feel defeated and weary and we don't know where it's all going to end and we need to remember a global perspective and my students when I do this kind of thing with, with my students and I say tell me tell me some things that represent our culture today and they give a great description they say all kinds of things and they're all overwhelmingly negative normally the internet social media anxiety depression issues to do with sexuality. That, that's all true. But we don't just live in Basingstoke, as it were. People are becoming Christians all over the world now. The gospel is growing. Do we believe that? Yeah? In parts of Africa and China, the people are becoming Christians at an amazing rate. And we kind of think, oh, it's just all like this across the world. It's not. We believe those parables of uh, when Jesus talks about the extension and growing of the kingdom. So, of course, in our particular situation at, at the moment, there is a bit of a blip as we lose the trappings of the influence of the gospel, which has all kinds of implications for us as a culture. But we're not to be defeatist because Jesus Christ is Lord. He is on his throne. And that's important that we remember that. So we're not to have memory loss, we're not to be short-sighted. What God does want is the men and women of Issachar. Do you remember in 1 Chronicles 12, David's calling together all kinds of different troops and he's getting these big military people, these uh, people who have lots of tribes and they come in and with lots of numbers and they have great military prowess. And then he talks about the men of Issachar, men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. 200 people compared to the thousands of the other tribes. This is what Matthew Henry says about this passage. The men of Issachar were the fewest of all, only 200, 
and yet as serviceable to David's interests as those that brought in the greatest numbers, these few being in effect the whole tribe. They were weather-wise. They understood public affairs, the temper of the nation, and the tendencies of the present events. God is calling us to be men and women of Issachar, who know the times and who know what the people of God should do in our particular moment in history. And hopefully that's the aim of this evening, to make you a bit more weather-wise, to help you understand the times and to give some positive things that we can actually do in the situation that we're in. So, please, I'm saying this to myself as well, let's not be grumpy, let's be joyful, and uh, let's uh, engage like the men and women of Issachar. Now, why do we engage in the first place? Why do we have to engage with the culture around us? I suppose, or maybe you don't think this, I hope, I hope you do. Maybe you think, wouldn't it be great if we could just basically, as a church of St. Mary's, just live together and do everything together? We don't want to go outside. We just want to, you know, be here with the people of God. But we have to engage. Why? Firstly, because we're passionate about discipleship as Christians. We're a consuming culture. Do you remember the book of 1 John, the letter that talks about God's love a lot? How does that book end, the last verse of 1 John, which kind of comes out of the blue. It's a bit like it sticks out like a sore thumb at the end of the book. Dear beloved brethren, keep yourselves from idols. That's the last thing that John wants his readers of that letter to understand. Why does he say that? Because he knows that there are all kinds of influences that are on our lives that aren't particularly healthy for us. We're to keep a watch from idols. And of course, we only, know what I, we only know how to do that when we know what the idols of society are, what people put their ultimate trust in. Um, I do think sometimes that we are influenced by things that we don't think we are, but there's, we're influenced all the time. By all kinds of different things. The question is, is it a kind of a biblical influence or not? So we are to keep ourselves from idols. We're also to create culture. We're told in Genesis we are to fill the earth and subdue the earth. We're to take every thought captive for Christ. Not just what we do on a Sunday or midweek, but in our vocations, in everything that God has told us to do. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Not on Sunday and Wednesdays only or when you come to a Wednesday night meeting at church, do it for the glory of God. No, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Everything that does not come from faith is sin. So the question that I have for you is, in everything that you do, in the vocation that God has given you, in your job, in the responsibilities that God has given you in your human relationships, are you thinking Christianly about those things? Or do you just think Christian things pertain to a very narrow view of things? We're told to fill and subdue the earth. So we have to be passionate about engaging in the world around us because of discipleship. We also engage because we're passionate about evangelism. This is really uh, important, and I do think sometimes as Bible-believing evangelical Christians, we kind of forget this. Um, the sociologists will talk about something called plausibility. It's a bit of a, a mouthful. 
but a plausibility structure is a web of beliefs that are so embedded in the hearts and minds of the bulk of a society that people hold certain views unconsciously or they never think to ask if they're true. These plausibility structures are the heart of a society and they provide the background of beliefs that make arguments easy or hard to accept. Now, I'm talking cryptically. Let me give you an, an illustration. There are people, many people, if I wander around Basingstoke in that big shopping centre that I was very cold in, uh, um, there are many people who will have absolutely no time for Christianity. Have they ever met a Christian? No. Have they ever been to church to have a bad experience that they're reacting against? No. They've just been brought up in the air where it says that Christianity cannot be true. It's not as if they've done a PhD on atheism. It's not as if they've had a bad experience. It's just everything in the air around them, the air that they breathe is Christianity is untrue, irrelevant, homophobic, imperialistic, arrogant. They haven't done, they haven't done any formal study on it. It's just how it is. Now, if we don't understand that background then when we come in and have a conversation with them and we think people are neutral, people aren't neutral. Of course they're not. There's already a big bias there. And that means that there's big, I suppose, cultural blocks that people have to believing the gospel. Now, this is that we're not going to do it now, we don't have time, but this is something I did, did in, in, in Wobbsier at, at college. You see, every culture, and we are a particular culture here, non-Christians from that culture will have certain beliefs that they think uh, are so overwhelming that Christianity can't be true because of something else. Philosophers call it a defeater. It defeats the belief. So, I know, looking around here, and this is what I... that pretty much, I imagine, middle-class white. So that means, on the principle that I like people like me, your non-Christian friends will probably be, over, probably be middle class and white. That's not the case across the board. And that means that middle class white people have certain objections to Christianity. If I said to you just for a minute, think about a non-Christian friend that you have. I do hope you do have some non-Christian friends. I mean, that's, we can't, we're not going to get very far if we don't have that. Yeah? I'm being serious. Yeah? We need to have relationships with people. Think about someone that you've been longing to tell the gospel to or someone in your family or someone who isn't a believer. Think about how would they answer the question. They've said to you, I could never be a Christian because. What do you think they're going to say because? Just in, in pairs. You don't have to say who the person is. Just say, that person would say to me, they could never become a Christian because. What's the because? What would they say? Just in pairs, just for a minute. What would they say? Now, this kind of always works. Uh, I, I, just, I can predict probably what most of you are going to say. So put your hands up when I talk about this issue. So I could never become a Christian because it will be something to do with evil, the problem of evil. There's so much evil in the world. Any hands on that one? Yeah, a few. I couldn't become a Christian because Christians are too um, uh, 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 hypocritical couldn't become a Christian. Something, it'll be something to do with science and miracles and, yeah. Something to do with other religions. Either other religions are all the same or other religions are equally bad with each other. 
Christianity is irrelevant. It just hasn't had any bearing on my life. Uh, Christianity, um, something about, probably something about um, a kind of a moral straitjacket, probably related to sexuality and those, those, those kinds of issues. Um, is there any big thing I've missed out? Yeah, suffering, yeah, evil, evil suffering. That was the first one. Anything else? Yeah. It's not cool, yeah. It's, yeah, it's just not relevant. Yeah. Yeah, corruption in the church, hypocrisy. So, pretty much, I guess those. Now, here's the interesting thing. I used to live in Leicester. If I went down the Curry Mile in Leicester, where I used to have my tandoori, and said to some of the people who owned those restaurants, why aren't you a Christian? Their reasons for not being a Christian would be very different from your ones. It would be, I could never become a Christian because it's related to Americans, American foreign policy. I have never heard a white middle-class person reject the Lord Jesus over American foreign policy. Yeah? Now, the point is this. Every culture has its own specific objections to the gospel. And these um, kind of objections are like big bouncers outside the Jesus nightclub, yeah? We would love to take our non-Christian friend and introduce them to Jesus. But I can tell you, and this is, you know, it's not just, this is how sin works, this is how sociology works. People will not be listening to you, anything you say about the Lord Jesus, until in some way you answer these blocks, until you try and answer something about evil, or something about hypocrisy. Because then these are things are so, they're, they're, they're these big bouncers. You can't get past them. Because these are the views that are stopping people from telling. And you can say, but all I want to do is tell them about Jesus. But all they can hear is, whenever I hear that word Jesus, I think of evil. I think of other religions. I think of hypocrisy. So what we have to do in some ways is know the culture to understand what are the issues and then try and address them in some way. And like all well, not all bouncers, but all big bullies, they're complete, they, there's nothing to them. The person, your non-Christian friend, I would imagine, again, on the problem of evil or other religions or, or whatever, they won't have done a PhD on the issue. They probably haven't thought about it as much, much at all. They've probably watched a Channel 5 documentary, they've read something somewhere, and they know that Christianity can't be true because of that one thing. Now, what we have to do is answer that head on. And that means we need to do some work. We need to do some work on how would I respond when someone says Christianity can't be true because there's so much evil in the world? Or what do we do about other religions? Generally speaking, you have the opportunity here through teaching and seminars and all kinds of things to be really well-trained. I imagine your non-Christian friend is not going to a parallel Wednesday evening for non-believers that has a meal and then has someone like me telling them how not to be a Christian. <laughs> they won't. They're not thinking about it. But you are. You have a great opportunity there. But we need to be savvy to that. It's no good just saying, oh, people are just sinful and they just need to believe. Of course they're sinful. Of course they need to believe. Of course... They will only believe because of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit works through means. Sociology at this point is very helpful to us. How do people think together? How do they have unbelief together? So these plausibility structures are really important. These blocks are important. And again, 
Again, just think about it tonight. Think about your non-Christian friend. Pray for them. Pray that you'd be able to think, what's this thing that I really need to try and answer them on? Go and do some homework on it. Ask Rob. Yeah? Ask Clive. Ask Tim. Ask Caroline. Yeah? All of them. Okay. So we're passionate about evangelism, and that's why we have to engage with culture. Now, as we look over our world, and we haven't really got time to spend much time on this, I've said already, look... you could just say, people are sinners, they just need to repent, I just need to tell them that. It, it, of course people are sinners, we're all sinners, we need, people need to repent to believe the gospel, and no one ever becomes a Christian but by the Holy Spirit. I completely believe that. If that's the case though, why does, in the Acts of the Apostles, does it talk about the Apostles arguing and persuading and reasoning? Why is it that we don't just go with big sandwich boards saying repent and believe and we wander around. I go, um, I'm a, I go and support West Ham United and um, there's a guy there every, th- every week as the thousand stream to the Olympic Stadium, although I wish we were still at the old ground but that's another story, um, as, there is a guy with a megaphone who's shouting out Bible verses. Why don't we do that? We, we know in our hearts of hearts that he probably thinks People need to repent and by the Holy Spirit they'll believe. But we do believe in means, don't we? Because I would imagine none of us would think that that's the most effective evangelistic method. Are we being worldly? Of course we're not. We do believe that it's by the Holy Spirit that people uh, believe, but through means. And we are to persuade. We are to be plausible ourselves. Yes, the gospel is offensive, and we'll talk about this in the next uh, um, session as well, but the gospel also connects with people. Now, when we look around, what is the kind of world that we live in? And I've, I've given just a load of things. We haven't got any really time to just go through these. Let me go through these very quickly. We live in a secular world. And by secular, I don't just mean that there are more people going to church in 1950 than there are in 2018. I don't even mean that some people think that there's a secular sacred divide. And so politics, you can't talk about religious stuff. I don't mean that. By secular, I mean that we live in an age now where... It's, it's um, I'll put it this way, 500 years ago, it was impossible to imagine anyone who didn't believe in God. And now we live in a society where we are kind of very countercultural to believe in God. And the secular age is that we're all swimming in that world where it's pretty incredible to believe in God at all. Now, what, what does that mean for us? It means that... Uh, all of us are like that. See, what we need to get out of the idea is saying that we are here and we are not secular, but the world out there is secular. Unfortunately, we're all secular. We've all been kind of um, coated with that. And that's why one of the features of people who are secular is that they feel pressured because it's a very strange thing to be a Christian. And that can put all kinds of pressures on people. We need to be aware of that in the church as well. I do think it's the case, and again, you might say um, that you know, this is just a lack of belief, but I think it's just true. Young people who are becoming Christians today in our country, well, that's an amazing thing, and young people are becoming Christians, but the nature of their faith, I would say, and you might know this about people in your church who have become Christians, their faith is very fragile. And we need to be aware of that, because they are secular people. We're all secular people. 
But, as one writer says, the secular is haunted. Look, you've got your Stephen Fry and you've got your Richard Dawkins and, you know, they're hardcore atheists, you know. But generally speaking, most people, most average unbelievers, even in our country, are not hardcore atheists. Because... Because we're made in God's image, there's always something we're not quite, we want to kind of hedge our bets a little bit. And so this idea is that if you look hard enough, even the most kind of person who has got no time for Christianity at all, often there's a bit of their life that is still quite religious. Julian Barnes is a writer that you may have heard of. He wrote a book uh, a few uh, years ago called Nothing to be Scared of. And the book opens like this. And I think this is typical of many people in our context. It opens like this. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And again, that's a great evangelistic opportunity. Lots of people aren't quite willing to close the door. And that's why, even in our very kind of secular scientific society, why are tarot readings so popular? Why are people in lots of ways still wanting to be very spiritual? Because people know that there's something. They, they, they don't believe in Jesus. They don't even believe in the Christian God. But we realise that we're more than just overactive glands. We know that we, there is some stuff that we can't... You know, why are romantic comedies so popular? So we need to realise that. The secular is haunted. Again, all these other things, the scientific... The sentimental, um, the stuff by which I mean, oh, the, the, the sexualized world, a social justice world. Did you notice that Miley Cyrus thing? After you got about all the stuff about, you know, I don't relate to being a boy or a girl, which is you know worrying. But did you notice the stuff on social justice at the end? Even not Miley Cyrus. This is the weird thing about that 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 quotation. On the one hand. There's the kind of, you know, the really disturbing stuff about how she sees her own gender. On the other hand, though, there's something in her that says social justice is important. Hey, do you know what? We believe in social justice. There's a point of connection there. So we might think, how do we connect with something like that? A soundbite world, a sentimental world, and what I'm going to call a stuff-filled world, just materialism, people acquiring stuff, And these are all characteristics of the world that we live in. And if you put all those things together, it can be incredibly overwhelming. And as I said, in the next uh, session, we're going to see how might we have some tools to engage. What I want to finish on in this session is this. Given that overview, you still might feel pretty disorientated and thinking, what on earth do we do faced with the the world that we live in. And this is where it's really important that we remember some basics. The first thing is that we remember what I'm going to call the sufficiency of Scripture. We do believe it's through the Bible that we understand the world. And we have X-ray... The Bible gives us X-ray goggles to see the world as it really is. And the Bible tells us about human beings... And do you know what? We know our non-Christian friends better than they know themselves. Why? Because the Bible tells us what they're like. 
It tells us what makes them tick. And we need to remember that when we, we're thinking, I don't know what to say, I don't understand the world that we live in, do we believe in the sufficiency of God's word to understand the world? And that's why, and I hope and pray that it is true, I know it's true here, that's why this is a Bible-centred church. This is why we want to learn what God's word says about the world. And we need to remember that. The Bible is so important, and again, publicly as well, at the Queen's coronation service, if some people here remember that. Um, the Queen is given a Bible by the moderator of the Church of Scotland, and how is the Bible referred to? We present your majesty with this book, the greatest thing this world affords. This is royal law, these are the lively oracles of God. The greatest thing this world affords. And the, God has given this to us. So the sufficiency of scripture is very important. And from the Bible we learn, in our crazy world that we don't understand, do you know what? It's the same God that was there in the beginning. When Adam and Eve were created. When the fall happened, when Abraham was called, when Jesus Christ came, it's the same God. Not only that, it's the same patterns of unbelief. Ecclesiastes 1.9, which you'll know, what has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. And it's interesting, in all of the sophistication of what's going on in terms of people questioning uh, whether there is such a thing as male or female, or you know, all of these things that we're dealing with at the moment, technology, there's nothing new under the sun. All these things can be traced back to issues that Christians have had to deal with for 2,000 years. Unbelief looks very similar in some ways, but we need to do some digging to find out and how the Bible can help us on that. So we believe in the same God, which gives us a sense of orientation, the same unbelief, nothing should phase us really, it's all the same stuff. And importantly, the same saviour who brings hope to hopeless people. Just quickly as we finish this first session, turn with me to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3. Let's open up the Bible at this point. A very uh, well-known passage um, Peter says this in 1 Peter 3, 13 to 16. Who is there to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats or do not fear them. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. The situation that Peter faces, or the, the letter that he's writing to these Christians, is very similar to our situation at the moment. Christians who aren't outright being persecuted, but it's very uncomfortable for them. I think the, the situation of 1 Peter is very similar to the situation that we face here, in our context. And the first thing that Peter says in that passage that we just read out is this. Don't panic. 
He says, remember the, the Christian pattern of suffering. But look what he says in verse 14. Do not fear, or it could, be, it could mean do not fear the people who are persecuting you, or do not fear what they fear. could be both. And you might think, well, it's all right for you to say that, Peter. You're writing this letter miles away, and we're getting it in the neck. And you say, don't fear. It's easy for you to say that. But you see, Peter knows what it's like to be under pressure. Herod tried to kill Peter in Acts chapter 12. Now, why don't we have fear? Well, verse 15, in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. You see, Peter knows where the power is. Peter was the one who was asleep in the boat, and all the disciples panicked when the storm came up, and they said, Master, we're going to drown. And Jesus stood up and quieted the wind and the waves. And what does it say? They were terrified. So Peter's kind of saying, look, I know it's hard. I know people are persecuting you. I know it's difficult being a Christian. But don't be afraid of them. Set apart Jesus Christ as Lord. He's the one who you should live in reverent fear. We had that earlier on in 1 Peter. Christ alone is the true emperor. He alone is the Lord. And as we lift Christ up, our fears disappear. And as we fear God, our other fears disappear. Look, I know we live in a very scary world. And some of you are, I imagine, quite scared about where the world is going. And we want to take the gospel message to people. But putting ourselves out is scary. Asking our non-Christian friends about what they think about the world and Jesus and everything like that is scary. But we need to remember that we're not to fear those people. We are to set apart Christ the Lord as holy. Look, I could do all kinds of training with you. We could do months of training on apologetics. We could do that if we wanted to. Do you know, I think the big thing, probably above all others, why we don't share our faith is not because we haven't been given the right tools, is that we're scared. We just don't want to put ourselves out. We don't like being embarrassed. And if we just said, do you know what? I don't care what anyone thinks. I just care what the Lord Jesus thinks. I think our evangelism and witness in this country would be transformed. And I am the same exactly as you. Exactly the same. Doesn't come naturally for me. You know what it's like. You meet some people who are naturally evangelists and you think, I could never do that. But we are called to give a reason for the hope that we have. So I would say we are to keep calm and carry on doing what we're doing, giving reasons for hope. And that's very important, isn't it, that we, are, that we do give reasons for hope. How do we communicate hope? In lots of ways, and I would, this would encourage you, if you think, oh, I'm not very bright, I don't understand this, I could never learn how to give a, an intellectual answer, I'm a bit of a thicky. Maybe you're thinking that. Well, giving a reason for hope is not simply intellectual argument. Let me give you an example. Think of a girl confronted by a boy who wants to ask her out. And the girl might say to the boy, give me one good reason why I should go out with you. Now imagine her reaction if the boy's answer is purely intellectual. If you quantify the fun-to-time ratio of spending time with me, I think you'll agree that this compares favourably with similar ratios of spending my time with any boy at school. Here, allow me to adduce historical evidence to support my claim. Now, 
Some of, some of you ladies are, th are thinking, wow, what a guy. <laughs> no, no, that's not the idea. You'll be thinking, what a geek, yeah? If it's purely intellectual. We're giving reasons for hope. Very much like that situation we're talking about here. There are all kinds of other answers. The girl says to the boy, give me one good reason why I should go out with you. The boy says, I think I'm the first one to ask. That's a reason, <laughs> yeah? The girl says to the boy, give me one good reason why I should go out with you. Because I've been in love with you for five years. Not in a stalker way, but in a kind of, you know, yeah? There's all kinds of ways of giving reasons. And what are we giving a reason for? Hope. If you're not brainy, you're not disqualified for giving a reason for hope. We have hope. The new birth of Jesus, in Jesus Christ. And many people today, as you will know, are hopeless. And they substitute all kinds of other desires that do not satisfy. As Jeremiah says, they've turned from the fount of living water, they've turned to cisterns that cannot hold water. And we're not offering a what. We're offering a who. Do you remember that passage in Acts where Philip is talking to the Ethiopian? And uh, the Ethiopian saying, look, I don't understand Isaiah, and, uh, and Philip explains it. Does, does, anyone here, does anyone here have a King James Bible? Does anyone use a King James Bible here? Have, have you got it with you? Have you got it with you now? Okay, don't worry. In our NIV, uh, or the ESV, or whatever the modern translation is, it says something like then, in that passage, and Philip then began to explain to him the good news of Jesus. Now, that's right, this is where one point, not many points, where the King James gets it just right. The King James says, which is more accurate, and Philip showed him Jesus. Now, of course, the gospel is good news. But the word gospel isn't used there. It's literally, and Philip showed him Jesus. We are presenting people, we are introducing our non-Christian friends, not simply to a philosophy, or a worldview, or a way of being. We're presenting a person, Jesus Christ. And that is our job. We are introducing our non-Christian friends to the most amazing person that ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know him as our Lord and Saviour, and we want others to know him as well. And you might think, I could never give an intellectual answer that would answer some of these questions. But you know what? I do know Jesus personally. I can speak about what he has done, not just for me, but for loads of other people. I can talk about his death. And for people who are hopeless, Jesus is the most amazing, beautiful, attractive person that's ever lived. Now, I think you can do that. You can talk about what Jesus has done for you. You can talk about what Jesus has done for people who will come to him, people who are tired and weary and struggling, you can offer them Jesus. That's our job. Now, we're going to have a break now. No, we're not going to have a break. In our second session, we're going to do some practical steps. I think we have some questions now. Questions, yeah. Yes, just on this bit. Don't ask me yet, <laughs> how do I do this? We'll, we'll get on to that. Great, we're going to have a mic come round. Um, so if you'd like to ask a question, put your hand up. Although I've got one sent in <laughs> earlier, and I oh. think we'll start with this. Um, the question is, Billy Graham was once asked how he... <laughs> uh, 
was once asked how he managed to speak to so many different cultures and how, he did, um, how, <coughs> how did he know what he was saying to them that they would be interested in. Yeah. His answer, human nature hasn't changed. Is there a danger that we're put off sharing the Christian worldview because we're not up to speed with the latest fad or culture? Um, there can be a danger of that. Um, I went to Crystal Palace with Billy Graham in 1989. I guarantee he would not fill football stadiums now. Probably the same message. So something's obviously different in that, in, in, in that, in, which just shows that we're in a very different cultural situation. I'm sure Billy Graham would preach the same message, but, the, but the things have changed culturally, not the message has changed. So yes, we can, of course, and, I, and I've already said, you can do all the kind of evangelism, apologetics training. At the end of the day, if, you, if you're ashamed to talk about the Lord Jesus, then that's going to be a, bit, a, a big problem. I still think, again, in the Acts, there's arguments, there's persuasion, there's understanding, there's, there's knowing the times, and that is important. And yes, it's all sin, yes, it's the Holy Spirit, but again, Billy Graham didn't, wasn't megaphone man. So the way that Billy Graham did it, there's a lot of strategy behind that as well. So we just need to recognise that. Thank you. Uh, other questions on what Dan said? I can't Come believe on. there's no, no there must be questions. questions. Yes. yes. Thank you, Graham. Thank you. Thanks for being brave. No pressure. <laughs> uh, you talked about plausibility structures yeah. in the world. Yeah. What about our own plausibility structures within these four walls that stop us letting people in? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think, uh, yes. Uh, ha have we created barriers to, um, for people? Well, it's, let me give, give you an, an example. Um, we, I'm an elder of a Baptist church and we have a carol service every year where I, which I think we do quite well and we do a lot of advertising and we give out a lot of leaflets and we do carol singing and we have probably one or two people come to that service the big Anglican church they have 3,000 people come through their doors now why is that the case because there is still I would say and I say this as a, I don't say this as a kind of a, a bitter nonconformist, um, <laughs> but there is still something probably more plausible about going to an, a big Anglican carol service than there will be coming to my little Baptist church in East Finchley. Yeah? So we need to work, we, I need to work about what does that mean for us as a church? And of course, there'll be plausibility for, people, for, 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 for your I issues as well in terms of what gets people over the threshold, how do we engage with people, um, what do we... Uh, how messy are we going to allow our gatherings to be in terms of people coming from all different backgrounds? And I know it's a, cl a classic kind of way of dealing with it, but, you know, it's still good. It means, you know, send theological students to, to see what it's like for a non-Christian to come to church, take a Christian and tell them to go and put a bet in a betting shop. It's uncomfortable. You don't know what to do. Now, of course, the gathering is for God's people, but the best way I've heard about this, Graham Bynan, who teaches independent ministry, he says, look, church is a family, and if you're inviting someone for family lunch, you still do what the family does, but you probably give a bit more explanation to, people, to visitors. I'm not saying we're not being family when we're meeting. We're, we are Christians worshipping God, but maybe we want to, if we've got guests, then we do give some explanation. Um, so, yeah, I think there's big plausibility internally in terms of, 
what we do together, how we meet, all of those things that we need to continually uh, look at without realising that the Bible calls Christians to meet together, to worship, to pray, to hear God's word, to have sacraments, to do discipline, all, all, all of those things. Yeah, yeah. Do, do we put expectations on people before... I mean, this is a bit... This is going too far, but before we let them through the door... Do we unconsciously put expectations on people who turn up at the door and say, we can't, you know, without actually saying it explicitly, we don't really want you in here looking like that, dressed like that, behaving like that? Oh, no, no, I'm sure we do. I mean, it's interesting. I'm kind of dealing with, uh, yeah, um, yeah, I think, I think we need, again, we need to be prepared that if we are going to be reaching all kinds of different people from all kinds of backgrounds, then we're going to have to put up with, put up with a lot of difference but that's a that's a, a wonderful thing, and um, uh, I think I think you're you're right. I just don't know whether we're prepared for that. It's it's, it's other things like you know at our church as well, and you know I I, I love my church. Um, but we did, we we for a number of years we've done English conversation classes for people who are coming from a different background, Hindu Muslim background. I don't think we ever realised that if someone actually was a Muslim who became a Christian through our English conversation class their social structure then completely goes. Their family might disown them, they've had no look at... And as a church, you're thinking, wouldn't it be great if we had people who came from those classes, got converted and then come to church? We had no infrastructure. How would we look after those people? They would have nothing. And of course, we had just haven't thought because we don't realise that if people do... If amazingly people did become Christians, what, what are we going to do? So it's, it, 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 it's those things. What, one more thing. Can I say one, one more thing on this? Ray Evans, who's a, a minister in Bedford, gives this example. He says, imagine an air, if you imagine an aircraft carrier. If you're, if you're um, kind of landing an aircraft on an aircraft carrier, you have to pl plot the plane over the horizon, way out, and plot the plane in for it to land on the aircraft carrier. And so for his church, he has all kinds of different ways of doing things that plots people at different stages how do we connect with people who we would not have contact with normally so they they have a, a, a ministry to prostitutes they Ray says i would never in a million years be able to reach people like that but how do we plot people over the horizon how do we gradually bring them in and land them in you know on a scale of one to ten one people know nothing about the gospel and aren't interested nine or ten they want to do christianity explored yeah i think we think that basically people are at a six or a seven, and they're not, they're at a two and a three. And if we can get people from a, a one to a two, to a four, to a six, and we have to be strategic in how we do that, in what we're, in the kind of things that, that we're doing. It, it's kind of, you know, it's not simply, you know, we're going to do Christianity Explored. To get people to do Christianity Explored, you have to plot them in. Not in a manipulative way, but in a kind of a friendship way that brings people in. Now, are we thinking that strategically? Thanks, Dan. I'm afraid um, we've got questions afterwards, Sorry, but um, we've got to go to tea and coffee. So can I ask everyone here and this front green patch, do you want to go and get coffee first? <laughs> and I think the rest of you, um, we can carry on with questions, if that's okay. Oh, fine, yeah, yeah. Um, when the queue goes down, would someone just mind coming in and telling the rest of us to come in? So, for those who are still here, um, any more questions on this? Yeah, right at the back here, on the right. Thank you.
Thanks, Dan, for that. Hi. Um, I'm almost... <laughs> Clive's still sitting there. Um, almost inclined to say, welcome to another dysfunctional family. Um, but a couple of years back, I heard the senior chaplain at um, Birmingham Airport speak to a conference. And he said, when did the Great Commission, in your going, make disciples morph into come to my church? Now, I've, I accept that it's, it's not either or, it's actually both and. Yeah, yeah. Um, but how do you answer the criticism that all we're inviting people to do is come and join us in the ghetto? Yeah, great. Well, I mean, I think a, a few things to say on that. One, we can so pack our church with programs and events for Christians that we don't actually get out and into the community. I mean, I, I, was, I, wasn't, I was only half joking about have you got any non-Christian friends and again I say this to myself I mean I live in I, I lecture in a theological college I live on site and I don't I don't find it I have to make intentional effort to be connecting with unbelievers and to be friends with people and I, I know some churches where uh, they will say you know if you do growth groups or one one group one 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 thing a month will be let's not do anything let's just go out and join a club let's get to know people the, the, the relationships, people are so suspicious of authority, they're suspicious of Christianity, and sometimes you're only going to be able to have a conversation with someone about spiritual things when there's been trust, and you only have trust when you get to know someone, and that takes time. It's, sociologists have said it basically in our culture, it takes about 10 years for someone to become a Christian. 10 years. And that is a lot of relationship building. And that's what we need to do. So I, I echo your, your sentiments there in terms of, yes, we need to be um, meet, uh, doing things as the people of God. Of course we do. But the church, the, we, the church is not sent ever. That language is never used in, in the New Testament. People come to the church and the church sends people out into the world. And that's what we are to do. Clive's job and Rob's job, I, this is the way I, I um, illustrate it. It's a bit like a medical army tent. We, the church is a medical army tent, yeah? We're an outpost of the new heaven and the new earth now. We're the show home. We're meant to, the church is meant to be the show home of the new heaven and new earth. Can you imagine that? Amazing. But we're like this medical army tent. And every week, you guys come in, and Clive's job and Caroline's job and Tim's job and Rob's job is to give you some food, Bible, bind you up, and send you out again. And that is, that is what we're called to do, to fill and subdue the earth. And so that's where we're meant to be going out. People are sent out from the church. Now, if we don't do those things that we should be doing, hearing, hearing God's word, having sacraments, doing discipline, doing community, then we won't be fed up, fed up as it were, to be sent out. So we need to do those things. But people are sent, and that's what we need to be doing. And as you, you need to be sent out into your vocations that God has given you in work and leisure, time, and all of those things. And, you know, I, I'm, you need to know, how do I think Christianly about those things? And that's where God has given pastors and teachers and evangelists to help you, to disciple you. Um, so, yeah, there's a, very, there's a big outward motion there. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with what you're saying. And again, you're saying it's, it's, a, it's a both and. Sorry. Send free. Oh, I'm sorry. We'll come back to you quite <laughs> next time. Thank you. Um, 
Yeah, go for tea and coffee. Thank you. Uh, we're going to look at one little passage, and then in a minute we're going to have a worked example that you're going to do in groups, which is that other sheet of paper in size font 3 or something. I'll read it out, because I, I know some of you have been struggling to read it. Um, 1 Corinthians 1, can you turn to just for a minute? This passage has been really important for me in terms of just simplifying what I think, how, how do we engage? 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God would please through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Right. Two things to note. Both are true. The first is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ always will confront unbelief and culture. The gospel confronts. It is foolishness. The message of the cross is scandalous. I once did, I've done, I've done one, I've, done, I've only done one Radio 4 programme, Beyond Belief with Ernie Ray, some of you may, may have listened to it, and it was on hell, I've done some writing on hell in the past, so they, they got me on Radio 4 to talk about hell with a liberal Protestant university lecturer and a Catholic journalist. And uh, we were talking about hell and I, I said I believed in the traditional kind of biblical view uh, of hell, and we were talking about the reasons for that, and uh, two things I noted from that. One, the, the other guests, the panellists, were absolutely appalled that I would believe in judgment. Even though I said judgment's a great thing and we need judgment and we want judgment, they were appalled. How can you believe in God, in judgment? You believe in a God of the Middle Ages? Da, 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 da. They were appalled by judgment. Do you know what they were appalled more by, though? Grace. You mean that someone on their deathbed can turn to Jesus and he'd forgive them of their sins. That's ridiculous. They were appalled by judgment and they were appalled by grace. We worship at your feet where wrath and mercy meet. The cross is a scandal. The cross is foolishness. It will always hit up against people's pride and their unbelief. Now, for some of us, that's enough. And you know what? The more conf confrontational we are, the more faithful we think we are. If we can offend people, we must be great disciples of Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah? Some of us think like that. And if we're not doing that, we've sold out. Now, second point. You might just think, we just preach Christ crucified. I don't care. What, why is Dan talking about understanding different cultures and where they come from? It doesn't matter. I'm just going to preach Christ crucified. I don't need to know where you come from. I don't need to know your background because I preach Christ crucified. 
Now, if that's the case, if Paul simply just preaches Christ crucified and just says, Christ crucified, crucified, why does he bother to talk about two different types of people in this passage? He talks about two people, two ethnic groups, Jews and Greeks. Jews, their hopes and fears and aspirations are built around the idea of power, signs. Greeks look for something else, wisdom. That's their kind of narrative. That's what gets them out of bed in the morning, wisdom. Jews look for power. Jews don't look for wisdom. Greeks don't look for power. If we just preach Christ crucified, why does Paul bother distinguishing these groups? Because Christ crucified means different things to these groups. Look, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, okay, confrontation, a stumbling block to Jews, yeah, we like that, we like confrontation, foolishness to Gentiles, yeah, brilliant, the cross is foolishness, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, look, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul, you've sold out. You mean that Jews are looking for power and now you're saying Christ is power? Greeks are looking for wisdom and you're saying that Christ is wisdom? You see, the gospel confronts, but the gospel connects in the completely opposite way that Jews and Greeks are looking for power and wisdom. But Paul is not afraid to say, if this culture looks for this thing, Jesus confronts, but he still connects with it. So, think of your non-Christian friend again, yeah? Jews look for power, Greeks look for wisdom. What does your non-Christian friend look for? What's their, what are their hopes and dreams? What's their kind of the, the narrative that guides their life? For Jews, it was power. For Greeks, it's wisdom. For your non-Christian friend, it's whatever it is. And so how do we preach Christ crucified in a way that connects and confronts with them? That's what we're trying to do. Now, all I'm saying is we're still preaching Christ crucified, but we're doing it in a way that makes the context really important. Because do you know what? I'm, it may be me. No one's ever come up to me in the, in the pub and said, you know what, Daniel, I'm really struggling. I woke up this morning and I really felt under the wrath of God. And had, what am I going to do about that? People don't say that. They do say, my job's ru- rubbish. All I do is work and it's futile. And all I do is live for the weekend and I want to get wrecked. Now, we know Romans 1, that is the wrath of God being revealed. God is sending a megaphone to people saying things are not right. And we need to confront and connect with them at that point. Now, I'm going I'm to um, skip over some of this other stuff uh, because I, I want us to do this worked example. What I'm saying, though, here is that to understand culture, we need to understand how culture works. Every culture is a text, I suppose, that we can read and ask questions of it. What does it say? Who wrote it? Who reads it? And so culture is a religious act. Now, what we're going to do and I've cut, um, is, is um, look at this example. Rob's been very excited about this, so we're going to cut to it. Um, what you have on that bit of paper with very small print, in fact, can, can I have a copy of that, actually? I don't have a copy. Is, is there a spare copy around? Yeah, great. 
Right, now, this is a while ago now. So this is six years. London 2012 was six years ago. Can you believe that? Um, this was, if you went to the Olympics, uh, the, the opening ceremony, this is what you had in the programme. Now, what I want us to imagine is this. You have a non-Christian friend who watched the opening Olympic ceremony and read this and they thought, this is the world that I want. And I want you, what I want us to do is work out what might we say to these people to kind of connect with them and to talk to them about Jesus. So, this is written by Danny Boyle. At some point in their histories, most nations experience a revolution that changes everything about them. The United Kingdom had a revolution that changed the whole of human existence. In 1709, Abraham Darby smelted iron in a blast furnace using coke, and so began the Industrial Revolution. Out of Abraham's Shropshire furnace flowed molten metal. Out of his genius flowed the mills, looms, engines, weapons, railways, ships, cities, conflicts and prosperity that built the world we live in. In November 1990, another Britain sparked another revolution, equally far-reaching, a revolution we're still experiencing. The digital revolution was sparked by Tim Berners-Lee's amazing gift to the world, the World Wide Web. This, he said, is for everyone. We welcome you to an Olympic seminary ceremony for everyone. Sorry, not cemetery, ceremony for everyone. A ceremony that celebrates the creativity, eccentricity, daring and openness of the British genius by harnessing the genius, creativity, eccentricity, daring and openness of modern London. You'll hear the words of our great poets, Shakespeare, Blake and Milton. You'll hear the glorious noise of our unrivaled pop culture. You'll see the characters from our great children's literature, Peter Pan, Captain Hook, Mary Poppins, Voldemort, Cruella Deville. You'll see ordinary families and extraordinary athletes, dancing nurses, singing children and amazing special effects. Now listen to this. But we hope to that through all the noise and excitement you'll glimpse a single golden thread of purpose, the idea of Jerusalem, of the better world, the world of real freedom and true equality, a world that can be built through the prosperity of industry, through the caring nation that built the welfare state, through the joyous energy of popular culture, through the dream of universal communication, a belief that we can build Jerusalem and that it will be for everyone. Amen. It's a sermon, isn't it? Now, what I want you to do in groups of three or four is look at what I've just said, and again, you'll be, have to remember some of the, the opening ceremony of the Olympics. I'm sure lots of you watched it. And if you go to number four on, on, on the handout here, there's a kind of some stages that you can go through in doing this kind of analysis, which I think is really helpful. So enter into the story. What, what's the story that Danny Boyle's telling us? What, do we, what are the features of um, this particular world that Danny Boyle is spinning to us, telling us to enter into? What do we remember about it? What, what, what's the kind of vision he's kind of giving us? What's the good things about those? What's the, what's, what's the good thing? What are the good things that we think, yeah, do you know what? There's something to that. We can connect with that. And then, but what's the problem? How has he made a good thing into a thing that is a God thing, idols? And then how might we connect the gospel to what Danny Boyle is saying? Now, this isn't easy. If you haven't done this before, don't worry. We'll try and go through it. But once they give us some time to do this. So we're going to have five or ten minutes in groups of three or four. And just tell me what this text is talking about. And from your knowledge of the Olympic ceremony, what do we know about Danny Boyle? What are the features 
What's the good stuff that we could say from a Christian point of view? Yeah, there's some connection there, but where does it go wrong? And how might we connect the gospel? So someone, remember, we're not trying to evangelise Danny Boyle. We're trying to, someone who watched that Olympic ceremony and comes out thinking, this is the world that I want. How do we prick their bubble and say, do you know what? No. Let me tell you about someone else. How do we do that in a way that isn't kind of going, what I call going through the, you know, jerky gear evangelism. I'm into football and I scored a goal. Do you know Jesus scored a goal for all of us? That kind of thing, yeah? We're not... No, 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 no. We preach Christ crucified, yeah? Connect, confront. Right. Groups of three or four. I know some of you might be thinking, oh, I just wish I could just get out, get out of tracts and just tell someone about Jesus. You can do... Please, please do that. And if that, that works, then praise the Lord, yeah? What we're trying to do here is to say, how do we connect and confront people with the gospel in a way that naturally kind of fits with their own passions and hopes and dreams and fears? Because we need to be connecting and confronting them. So, here we have the situation. We have Danny Boyle. Now, do we have the roving mic? It might be that I just for time, I might just kind of have to... We can, I'll just repeat what, what, what people say as we shout things out. So, give me some of the characteristics. As we enter into that world in 2012, back in 2000, back in the Olympic ceremony, what were, the th- what were some of the features of, that, of, of what I read out in the Olympic ceremony? Give me some themes. Done for this country. Isn't this fantastic? Aren't we great? Wow, it's like method act, method, it's like De Niro method acting. Brilliant, yes, exactly. Human, human achievement, the idea of pro, progress was a massive theme. Remember at the beginning you had the dark satanic mills and um, yeah, uh, f- forgetting that all the horrible things that the Industrial Revolution brought, but don't worry, we'll go on, forward, through. Uh, and yeah, progress. Progress was a big theme and we've done it. Aren't we, aren't we as a nation great? Right, that was one big theme. Next. Other themes. Yes, the NHS, caring for people. The very strange thing about those hospital beds with big heads. Um, what was this? Give me some adjectives or ad- adverbs for the feeling of, of the ceremony. Great excitement, yeah? Optimistic, yeah? Humour. Mr Bean. Now, this is important. Os Guinness, the, the, um, the theologian, says, contrast is the mother of clarity. Now, why do I say that? The Olympics four years before London was what? Beijing. Would Mr Bean have been in the Beijing? <laughs> why are you laughing? Yeah? Of course not. Completely different ceremony. Different culture. Different way of showing impressiveness. London is all about mess, chaos, diversity, inclusion. Beijing is about lots of people in very regimented, ordered lines, and isn't it amazing to see these people moving? Equality. Now, here's the interesting thing. What, um, in the Beijing Olympics, the day before the opening ceremony of the Beijing Olympics, yeah, um, there was a scandal that happened. Does anyone remember? It's a long time ago now, 2008. Pardon? But the little girl she was to sing and she was dubbed. Brilliant. There was a little girl who was going to be part of the ceremony in a, in a choir 
but she couldn't sing because she had a, a learning difficulty and she was kind of removed. How does Danny Boyle start the 2012 Olympics? A choir with learning difficulties. Very conscious, you see. It's saying, we're not Beijing. We are inclusive. We are diverse. We're chaotic. We're fun. Now, that's the world. We've entered into the world. And your non-Christian friend's thinking, wow, this is a world that I, I want to be part of. Now, what do we do next? Well, what are the good things that this world is giving, is, is, is offering? Now, this is where Christians struggle because they think they're going to get the wrong answer. <laughs> what are the good things? Pardon? Yeah. Using intellect and talents yeah. for, for progress. Creativity. Is that a good thing? Yes, it's a good thing! <laughs> Inclusion. Yes, that's a good thing. Peace. A certain sense, progress, freedom, diversity. These are all good things. But here's the problem. How have, they, how have those themes been, have been taken and they've been kind of elevated as being the answer, haven't they? Look at the last paragraph of Danny Boyle. How are we going to build the better world, a world of real freedom and true equality, which as Christians we're saying, yes, that's great. It, how can it be built? Well, through the prosperity of industry, through the caring nation that built the welfare state, through the joyous energy of popular culture. There's no God here. There's no Jesus Christ here. There's no grace here. It's all that we can do it by these things. So that's the, that's the conceit. That's the kind of, we, we can build this world on our own. Now we need to be saying at that point, as Christians, for people who have been kind of captured by this, no, you can't. Now, how do we do that apart from saying, no, you can't? What are the reasons? Give me, give me the, the arguments, the things that you might say to say on these examples, that last paragraph, how might we try and prick that bubble if someone comes out and they say, wow, this is the world that, that we want, what might we say? Yeah, give me the clouds. Where are the clouds? Okay, yes, yes, we, yes. This could get very political now. I'm always aware of this. It depends where I'm doing it. I'm trying to work out where quite Basingstoke is in all these things, but don't worry. <laughs> yeah, we've read the, yeah. We would, pardon? Pollution, great. Yeah, I mean, the Industrial Revolution, great. What about, what about the World Wide Web? Isn't that wonderful? Probably 90% of the World Wide Web is pornography. Probably it's a very, very high number, very high percentage. What about, uh, well, there, there's a, the joyous energy of popular culture. If you remember in the Olympic ceremony, you had uh, a boy and a girl, mixed race, of course, Danny Boyle, yeah, going for a night out. And it, wasn't it great? Now, I imagine Basingstoke Town Centre on a Saturday night. Is that a, place that, is that a place that you really want to go to? No, exactly. So it's, it's a great phrase that our, our, my, my friend over there has used. But Danny Boyle is presenting this great picture, but we know in reality that life's not like that. And so all I would suggest for someone who came out of that Olympic ceremony completely enchanted and entranced, what we need to do is kind of get a metaphorical bucket of water and pour it over, yeah? 
when they say this is the world that we want, we need to say it doesn't work like that. This is, the, this is a fantasy. Yes, they're great elements, but do you see how you, we may do it in a clunky way, but do you see how we're trying to make connections? If we're not simply saying, we're not just having gone and watched the Olympic ceremony and then say, can I share a tract with you? Yeah. Or can I tell you about Jesus? We are want to tell them about Jesus, but in a way that connects with their world. They are enchanted by it, and we need to try and shake them out of it in that way. Now, here's the bit that we find the hardest. How do we connect the gospel at this point? How does the gospel of Jesus Christ connect in a real kind of tangible way with this? Could we say something about the theme of revolution? Yeah, yes. Revolution. Yes, what? Yeah. Well, it's very interesting, isn't it? And this is where it's not, it is quite complex because in the Olympic ceremony, probably the most touching moment was when Abide With Me was sung. And it was, it was played quite straight. It wasn't ironic at all. So again, yes, the idea of, of, of Jerusalem. And these other things. We believe in a community that looks after one another, that is inclusive of, of, of one another. Now at that point, what should we be talking about? Yes, we know the answer is Jesus. Yeah, yeah, okay. How do, we how do we experience that? What are we going to be talking about? The church. It should be that the church will give us a caring diversity. Now, here's the issue. One, are our churches like that? And this is why I was saying to uh, brother and sister down down here people who are hopeless rootless dysfunctional they should be looking at the church and saying do you know what i want to be i want to be part of that community people who are rootless and dislocated they don't want to look at the church that's divided and gossiping and backstabbing and people just out for themselves why would they bother ever wanting to be part they've got that already yeah this is why it is so important that our loving one another is such, adorns the gospel, is the criterion for the gospel. It provides the context for the gospel. If churches were loving one another, and loving one another sometimes does mean disciplining, it means that we want to help brothers and sisters live in a way according to the new birth. If churches were being churches, that would be such an amazing witness to the gospel in our country, more than it is. But how many of us know churches that are divided and people are just kind of not very nice to each other? So the church is the place where these things, we should see those things, and that Jesus does fulfil all of these things, not simply in the new heaven and the new earth, although of course that's where it's heading, but there's a tangible, remember the show home? There's a tangible expression of, of it now. Now, all of a sudden, you should be able to see, again, for a, for a non-Christian who, maybe if, if you just all make it future and say, one day we will have that new heaven and the new earth, but for now, life's completely rubbish and don't worry about it, but you still become a Christian because you'll be saved from hell. Yeah. Now, that's true, but we experience those blessings now by the Holy Spirit in the Christian church, in the community. 
Now, all I'm trying to say is that all of a sudden, can you see how you might be able to start making connections? You're still confronting because people have to turn from their sin. I finish with this. Isaiah chapter 44. Don't, don't turn to it. Um, a very famous passage. It's basically the Bible does private eye. It's the kind of satirical part in the Bible where Isaiah is talking about um, this person who worships an idol. And if you remember the situation, he's taking the mickey. He says, this person, they make an idol and then they break off half of it and they use that to cook their dinner. Yeah? Uh, Isaiah 44, 16. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. Meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He warms himself and says, Oh, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god. He's idle. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me. You are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see. And their minds closed so that they cannot understand. And here's the verse that I think is really important. No one stops to think. We live in a world where people are chasing all kinds of dreams and fantasies and they do not stop to think. And our job is gently but lovingly and firmly to make people stop and think. Do you know this way of living is not going to be good for you? This way of thinking is not going to be good for you? How about thinking about something else? How about thinking about a different saviour? How about understanding what this saviour has done in my life and how here is someone you can really trust. Here is someone, here is a community where we can have the equality that you want and the tolerance that you want. No one stops to think and that is our job, to turn people who are trying to lick up stagnant water on a cracked in a cracked pot and turn them to Jesus Christ and that's our job now we've got some time for questions but let me just pray can I just pray first and then we'll have some questions Lord we've gone through a lot of uh, material here and Lord we just pray that we would want to offer people Jesus uh, not simply an idea or a philosophy but a person and that we would be bold in proclaiming Christ crucified in a way that both connects and confronts with the hundreds and million ways that people live their lives and all the gods and the hopes and the fears that they run after, that we would help people make them stop and think to turn from that cracked cistern and to turn to the fount of living water. Amen. So we've got a little bit of time for questions, and I'm happy to try and answer. Yes, lady down here. Don't need to be here. No, exactly. What are you doing up here? Yeah, don't yeah, don't sit down. Yeah. Lady up here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rob. Um, have you got any uh, examples of really good questions to open up discussion? Because I think, you know, starting at that yeah, so we, I mean, we don't we, have time to do all that tech stuff all the time. So yeah, just some Yeah, so one can I get can I recommend a resource first of all? I think I've put it put it down here. There's a book by a guy called Greg Kukul called Tactics. And that is all about how do you ask questions to further a conversation. It's a really practical book. It's a kind of book that you could do in a small group. So, for example, I gave the example over here. He has some great things on when someone asks you a question, you've got 10 seconds to give an answer or else they'll move on to something else. So there, there are great... There, there, so there, 
he, he deals with the kind of questions that, that you might want to ask. I've put some of them on the handout as well. So when we're dealing, there's a bit that we didn't get to do tonight. Um, these questions about how do we find out what, what people's ultimate commitments are, what are their idols, whose authority do they acknowledge, whom or what do they depend, who do they give allegiance, what makes them safe and happy, trying to get behind the scenes of where people are at and say, here are their functional gods. Um, I've given, some, I've given a, one example here, and it's not being facetious, but when, when people say to me, I don't believe in God, I almost always go back and say, I bet I don't believe in the God that you don't believe in. in the, it's not the Christian God. It won't be the Christian God. It'll be something, who knows what it is, yeah? So again, it's kind of just trying to be a little bit subversive and just trying to kind of preempt. But the Kukul book's very good about, about saying, here are questions. I think we need to ask questions that really get to the heart of what drives or motivates. What, what are people's hopes and dreams? And this is why you need to know, if you only have superficial relationships, you will never penetrate. It's only when people start to trust you and they start to open out, then you do know what's going on and you know this is what's driving them. You know this is what they, they worry about. You know that the fact of the fact that they're so materialistic is because they're insecure or because, you know, all kinds of, of reasons. So whatever questions we ask, it has to be to kind of get to know. And, you know, you know in really good relationships, you can, you can have those kinds of conversations, but it takes time. We're so impatient. We're so impatient. And we just live in a culture where it's not quick and easy. It's going to take time. It's going to take persistence. I said, again, to the brother and sister down here, non, our unbelieving friends, are they've got this huge bit of armour on, now we know because of, we know because people are inconsistent because of the spirit as we pray that there are chinks in the armor, but we might be tapping away at that armor for years, and we need to just try different things. And sometimes we need to shut up and listen. Not very good at that, blokes especially. Sometimes we need to be more. We need to ask that extra question and just pray as you're about to go into a conversation with someone say lord give me give me the sense of when i need to say something give me the sense of when i need to be quiet the other thing i'd say is just bring normal christian talk into your conversation randy newman i've given the book again randy a guy called randy newman he's an american randy newman um bringing the gospel home and questioning evangelism really good he talks about joy-based evangelism in the sense of he just says look in normal conversation with people just say if when someone asks you how your day's been, just say, what, I was really thankful to God today because. Just acknowledge God in, your, in the conversation. Acknowledge what Jesus has done. Admit that you had to pray today because you were struggling with something. It's so basic. And some of you will be very natural at doing that. Some of you will think, oh, I could never say that. But just, just give it a go. Newman's point is that often people are so turned off because we kind of, all we do is moan about stuff. Joy-based evangelism. Talk about, we're filled with the Spirit, the joy of the Lord. Let's just show that. Let's talk about that. Dan, can I push you? I'm out. Yeah. Can I just push you a bit on that? I guess, you know, we've got that message clear yeah. that we do need to spend time with the non-Christian world around us. Just help us how we make those first steps because I guess a lot of us might just feel people perceive us as a bit intolerant and they've got all these sorts of perceptions of us as a Christian. So how do we... How do we gear our minds up? Well, yeah, to it? yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose it, it is saying where, where are the places in society where you can meet people who do not know the Lord Jesus, and 
It could be all kinds of it could be all kinds of places. You know, I for example, I, I might not might not look it. I do park run every week down at our local park. I'm sure there must be some park runs in in in, in Basingstoke. Again, it's quite a middle class thing. Interesting. Um, <laughs> but what's interesting there is park run has been established, and it's not just about a, a free doing a 5k run. It's intentionally been set up. The person who set it up. It's all about community. Come and do a 5k run, and then we're going to go to the cafe, and we'll get and we'll just have a chat. What an opportunity to say, do you know what? I'm going to get fit, and every week I'm going to have an opportunity with 200 other people to go and do a 5k run, and then we're going to go and have a cup of tea at the cafe, and I'm going to make make, make new friends. What a great evangelistic opportunity! Join a club. Do you know? Just get again. Go go out. Go out. We're sending people out into the world. Again, don't forget that you're part of a Christian family. But again, just go out and, and, and you know, meet, meet people where they're at. I think that's answering my friend's comment here. We, we're going to have to go out where, where people are at. But that's not a difficult thing because there's loads of... There's the, we have a whole creation out there to enjoy. And do you know what? We can enjoy it and we might be able to meet some people who don't know the Lord at the same time. Other questions? Oh. Sorry. Thank you. Other questions? Thank you. There's a, yes, this man here. Down the front, yeah. Speak about church. Um, are you sort of specifically referring to us as a church here or as Christians in other churches as well in the Basingstoke area? And in what way can we or should we work with other churches and to what extent are we sort of operating on our own, as it were. Yeah, great question. Well, I mean, I think, I, I think um, for, for, church, for Christians who are Bible-believing churches, and that's certainly not all people who call themselves churches, I think it's a great opportunity for us at the, in our time, cultural time, to display uh, unity. It's funny, we've been, um, we've been in, interviewing for a, a new position at college, and we interviewed a number of Americans today, and they still realise that in, in America, they have the luxury of being able to divide, divide over, very, over distinctives, very narrow distinctives, that even though there's unity, we don't, in some ways, we don't have to have that, that luxury. Increasingly, we're going to have to be doing more things together and majoring on the primaries. That's what we revolve around, the gospel. It's got to be the gospel. But there's loads of other things that maybe we wouldn't do in our own church, but for the sake of unity and doing things together, solidarity, we need to be connecting. And that's really important. I, th- I do think it's great that we've seen the rise of gospel partnerships and training schemes where Anglicans and independents come together. And that's why I'm passionate about um, directing a college where we have Anglicans and independents training together because increasingly we're going to have to be doing things outside together. Um, now, of course, that doesn't mean that we, are, we don't have unity with people who do not believe the authentic gospel. And that's critical. It has to be the Jesus of the Bible. Um, having said that, we could be doing far more together. And, you know, again, this is a real challenge because, especially in London, you know, it used to be said, you know, 11am um, is the most segregated time in America. That's still pretty much the case in London in terms of different churches and ethnic backgrounds and people, you know, in their own kind of little groups. And that, that is worrying when we realise the only reason why... If evangel- evangelicalism in the UK is at a growth of 0%, and that's only because of immigration. 
It's only because people have come who are Christians into the UK. That's the only reason why we're not dropping numbers. Now, we need to be in it, in it together. And what a great opportunity to meet people. You know, the reverse mission is really happening. People are coming from other countries to come and evangelise. We should be saying, welcome. Please, help us. Thanks, Sam. Uh, other questions? Someone over here, Sam. Um, I might be wrong, but I think you've kind of implied that we should be talking to people about Jesus rather than about church. But I think my fear is that people kind of understand what church is, whereas they don't really understand about Jesus. So it's harder to meet people where they're at in terms of what they know about if you suddenly go in and start talking about Jesus compared to church yeah no and, and i think yeah all i'm trying to counter is that because we know that jesus is the answer to everything the classic sunday school thing is that we need a way of expressing um that our relationship with jesus means that we are part of god's new community and that there's something very tangible about that what i don't want us to do is to is to talk about a kind of an airy fairy spiritualized jesus we, of course, it's Jesus who unites us and binds us and gives us unity, and we are, are around one gospel. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. What I'm trying to do is, is, is just, for some people, though, it can seem like a bit of a pipe dream, as if believe in Jesus, and then when you die, that's when you'll really kind of understand what's going on. Well, no, we, we, understand that, we understand that there are the joys of Christianity now. And that, that, that's all I'm, I'm trying to go across. Of course we are, we are trying to communicate. We're, we're introducing someone to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ is not detached from his people. We are united. And that's why I think the church is so important in that expression that, of which Jesus is the cornerstone. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's certainly not an either or. It, 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 or it's not a kind of a... What, what I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get away from, I suppose, is just uh, Jesus is the answer in a very vague sense. Christ crucified, connect, confront. So, yeah, I, I understand the question. It's not, it's not an either or. Thank you. Other questions? Yeah. Thanks. It's not so much a question as an offering, if you like, something which um, we can all read about and something which we can all quite easily remember and that is the story of uh well not the story the incident where jesus was at the well mm. with the samaritan yeah. woman he asked her for a drink and it ended up with the whole town coming up to hear him and he spent two days with them and it was just a simple thing that connection is so important you're right i you know absolutely agree with you finding those connections but there is a very simple example which yeah. i've used myself lord how does this work you know um i i'm confronted by this person who doesn't know jesus christ how do i connect with him yeah the connection came because he was worried about how to vote in the referendum and i we talked Brilliant. about that and then i talked about the fact that um, all right, we don't particularly like politicians, we don't particularly trust them. Um, we live in the United Kingdom, but actually, 
I belong to another kingdom. Right. That's the way it went. And it was all because of thinking about how Jesus Christ dealt with the woman at the Samaritan, yeah. uh, the Samaritan the great, woman at the well. Great point, brother. You don't have to talk about Jesus to talk about Jesus. And everything, and that's the point, everything is a connection. Because, again, human beings are, are religious beings. And remember, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. We're, we're, we're made to worship. We're religious. Every, everyone is a, is a religious being. And we can't quite close up. We can never really close off. There's always going to be, be, be opportunities um, to make that, that contact, contact. Sometimes we have to dig around, but it, 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 it will always be there. I think some of us are waiting for a set piece to say, yes, when are they going to ask me that question about evil or suffering? And they, do you know what? They never do. So we, so we, have, to, we have to kind of make the money, but the, the opportunities are there if you know where to look in the right places. That's the thing. And it gives us great confidence because it means that we can, you know, we're, I think Roger Carswell says, you know, we're only one question away from talking about Jesus. It's just knowing what, it's just knowing what those questions are. And don't be, a, don't be a, afraid to kind of, not fail, but to sound awkward or to, it doesn't, it does, just, just go for it. I just rather as kind of, just go for it. Um, ask that, that question. Um, yeah. I'm afraid we're out of time. Dan, thank you very much. Um, I love this to be not the end of the conversation, but start of it. So um, feel free to stick around for a bit now. We're still around for an hour or so. Yeah. Um, sorry. Uh, Dan's are. got to talk after this. At, no, I'm, well, you, can, uh, you, you can pray for me, actually. I'm, I'm, doing a, I'm Skyping into Australia from this church in, in an hour. The Gospel Coalition of Australia are doing a day on since the gay, um, the gay marriage bill was passed in Australia. They're asking people from the UK and from the US to kind of, um, what have you learnt? So they can kind of be ahead of the game. So I'm going to give some thoughts on that. But um, I knew I wasn't going to get back to London from here, so we're going to do it from the church here. So pray for <laughs> oh, great. Thank you. Um, I'd say a prayer for Dan. Tim's got an announcement at the end, um, but just to thank you very much no, again, and I'll just pray uh, now. Father in heaven, we praise you for the great truths we've heard this evening. Thank you, Father, that the gospel uh, that Christ, that's news of Christ crucified, is uh, a message that confronts and connects. And we pray, Father, that you would help us all to think more carefully and um, creative, um, with creativity how to reach our friends and neighbours with his glorious message. We pray for Dan, Father, that you would continue to keep him and build him up in that message of grace. And we pray particularly for this talk he's given in uh, an hour or so, that you would give him wisdom um, and the, uh, the right things to say, and that that would really build and strengthen the church in Australia. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Tim.